Hey, welcome back to Intimate Interactions. Let's get back to discussing the ways we share love and intimacy with our fellow humans. Relationships, kink, polyamory, group sex, it's time to unlearn stigma and live our best lives as our best selves. All thanks to my amazing Patreon supporters. Intimate Interactions has no ads but this one. If you want to keep it that way, you can go to patreon.com slash victorsalmon. You get access to exclusive premium content like all of my coping with jealousy stuff. And hey, if that makes you jealous of my patrons, it sounds like it might be time to sign up. Free resources are available at victorsalmon.com slash resources, and book recommendations are at intimatepodcast.com forward slash books. Also, my Patreon supporters don't have to listen to this ad. Now, let's talk about the episode. Masculinity can be thought of as a culture, and culture is a big deal. Masculine culture is a broad and challenging topic to talk about. I often try to avoid generalizations as much as possible, but they're sometimes unavoidable. I also ask Kyle, who offers his perspective as someone formerly in the Canadian Armed Forces, what he thinks about masculinity and masculine culture. We talk about elements of masculine culture, including dominance, obedience, respect of hierarchy, what's intimacy and how it's acceptable to express that, and to whom it's acceptable to express intimacy as a man. I'm excited to share this session with you on Intimate Interactions. All right, well, I will welcome the audience to another session of Intimate Interactions here with Kyle Huntley, who is an educator and also a veteran. And today we're going to talk more about the second piece. So how has life changed since becoming a veteran rather than when you were active in the forces? I know it's an open-ended question, but... Well, probably one of the largest things I noticed within the first six to ten months of not being active is that I relaxed. It... I never really comprehended how tight I held my body. My shoulders were always up. Um, my chiropractor is very angry at me, <laughs> so we're working on that. And it is it, it didn't really realize how much stress you put on yourself when you are trained to always be in a ready position. And it's not even so much a jump up and go. It's when my alarm went off in the morning, I would swing my legs out of bed, hop up, have a cold shower, brush my teeth, go downstairs, eat something, go. There was no break. I was trained to get up and go. Now I don't have to do that. Now I still have to get up for my job. But now I'd set my own time. So that rigidness has begun to dissolve. And that's probably one of the largest aspects of my day-to-day that saw a major shift. Mm-hmm. In terms of your relationships and in terms of like your experience of intimacy, I'm assuming that was not something that was express, expressly encouraged by being in the armed forces. I'm curious how things have shifted in your relationship since you've transitioned out of the forces and into more of being a veteran and just a civilian. Well, it's, it's interesting the the concept of being part of intimacy and relationships. The idea of family is very well pushed. The mm-hmm. effect of it or the actual actions are not always there. Um, we used to have a joke that there was mandatory fun, which is where your officer would tell you that there is a family um, activity day and they were bringing in bouncy castles and these cool carnival games and the whole base was invited and we we're just going to be friends. Well, I just spent all week with these people. <laughs> like, I want my weekend with my family. Right. And even though it's not technically mandatory, it's highly discouraged to not be there right so the joke is that it's mandatory fun right 
Um, and so that's that sense of there's good intentions that are poorly put out there. And it, it actually does put stress on you don't get as much one-on-one time as you'd like. Right. Um, similarly, you can be sent out for months at a time. Now, I am a reserve member, to be to clarify, because my, my experience is different from a Reg Force member. Right. Um, but of my um, nine and a half years as a reserve member, I actually spent five of those years Reg Force base on contract. So though I am not a Reg Force member, I have a small taste of what some of that was like. Right. Um, <clears throat> and going home, my wife, unfortunately, worked opposite hours. She worked evenings and nights. Mm-hmm. So when I got home, they, she was gone. Mm-hmm. And I would wake up, like I said before, and swing my legs and go. And she was just lying next to me. I would get home. She's gone. She would come home to me asleep mm-hmm. and so on and so forth. And my weekends were sometimes taken in long term, months at a time. So the intimacy um, was not always even possible or very heavily impacted. Mm-hmm. And there, I know there is a sense of brotherhood in the military, and I, I, I love that aspect to a, to a degree, but it's even that at times was forced. Hmm. Yeah. So talking more about brotherhood and the forces, how would you say masculinity, the culture of masculinity functions in the armed forces? Well, I'm going to straight up say it doesn't. Um, <laughs> it is... In majority, because there's obviously going to be exceptions to this, but in majority, it is destructive and hurtful. Um, Mm -hmm. There's a great deal of pressure to be what you should be. And as I was always leftist, always very um, liberal, and as I aged, I became more further left. I did not centralize. I went further left. Mm -hmm. Um, And in my unit, I was the tree-hugging hippie. That Got was, you. that was my thing. And being that I am n- not really hippy dippy in most of the things I do in the way that that word's used to describe, mm-hmm. it's interesting that someone who is quite masculine, physically strong, I present male very, um, very focused in, in many ways. Sure. I was the, I was considered not man enough in some ways. Right because of the hyper-masculine and destructive nature that was. Mm-hmm. And now in the Canadian forces, we uh, women have been actively part of combat arms for a number of years. So um, much of our unit were women. And the, the point I always thought was funny is that the toughest people I know were two of the women in my unit, that mm-hmm. they were the people that I would want watching my back because they were unreal in how they operated. Versus, and they always seemed to care more and that was a dynamic of, but they, they were masculine in the way that they were because they fit the mold that I was expected to fit in. Almost better than you did. In many ways better. Um, one of the women I was invited to her wedding, it was lovely. Um, at one point, she had a bottle of wine in one hand, uh, a huge wad of dip in her lip, and she was holding a cigar. This was her wedding. Um, and I mean, this is, that's not even of the ordinary. Like, that is who she was. She was this... M- she was masculine in women's clothing. Like she, that's kind of who she was as a person. Mm-hmm. Um, and it worked for her, but that's almost what we were all expected to be. And in many cases we weren't. Right. Um, I know many of my other friends who are veterans as well. Some of us have described very similar at times we felt pushed out for not being as, as hard or having some aspects of, um, 
of feeling sorry for things and feeling um, emotions and that we some people thought we were supposed to shut down which is i found interesting because that's contrary to the feeling or to the training training teaches us to engage with our emotions and use it interesting to not that denying it is destructive and hurts us yet the culture was not that interesting mm-hmm. great stuff so how do you think that relates to more mainstream ideas on men's culture? I'm, I'm curious to, un, to sort of unpack whether or not the military ideas on masculinity impact men's culture or the other way around or like what that relationship looks like from your experience. I think they're the final point. Uh, similar to the way we talk about police officers and other paramilitary organizations and governance, mm-hmm. they, they're, the people who go into it fit the mold in an extreme way. Mm-hmm. which is why it becomes very one-sided. So the people who want to be in the military will, on average, have certain beliefs. And that does tend to lean towards masculine. Got and um, the harmful side of it as well, mm-hmm. in that I need to be gruff and tough. And especially if someone feels like they aren't that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Nothing is more dangerous than someone who doesn't feel powerful getting handed a gun like i <laughs> yeah. i have pulled younger troops off of a range because i was I, I thought everyone around them was unsafe with a rifle in their hand right because they had these delusions of grandeur and that this thing was going to give them what they needed and that is the worst person to ever hand a weapon mm-hmm. and so not so much that I think the military impacts day-to-day culture. It's that military is the epitome of that aggressive culture, mm-hmm. but not in its actuality. Um, there was a very, um, there was a few scenarios that have come up in, in the previous um, issues in Afghanistan that were us in America and many other NATO countries were in, that there were some who acted hyper-aggressively and were punished ruthlessly. Because they should have been. That's not how you conduct yourself in a war zone. Mm-hmm. Versus we have others who showed compassion and worked with people and that, and they were considered the successful ones. Well, I mean, winning hearts and minds, right? Hearts and minds, that heart and mind program, which is, I'm going to bring up a very dark side of that phrase, that sure. hearts and minds is very effective in actuality. However, amongst my peers, the, what they said was hearts and minds, two in the heart, one in the mind. Ouch. Referring to the bullets. And yeah. that is very much the troop level culture Interesting. of it is that these hearts and mind thing, we knew it was effective. We knew what it was meant to do. We knew that's how you won a war. If the people believed in you, they wouldn't fight you. Right. But we, or the group and myself included, I'm not going to exclude me from this. I was young and I was part of it. Yeah. They, they pushed this notion. Now, I did not make it to Afghanistan. I came right after the conflict. Uh, the conflict, I shouldn't say after, it was ramping down. Mm-hmm. So we weren't sending as much. So my primarily my work was in rescue operations and um, aid to power. But the people I knew that came back mm-hmm. had this thing about them. Now we talk about um, PTSD, shell shock, the various terms and what war does to people. Now they were dealing with problems. Excuse me. What was interesting was my peers, my colleagues that never saw war like I didn't, but we were trained by the people who did Mm -hmm. and how that manifested. They didn't see the peace side. 
the people who went understood that the jokes and the bad things they were saying were directed directly at the people who were currently shooting at them, right. not the culture as a whole. Mm-hmm. So there was this understanding, the subtlety to the way they talked. And that's how they dealt with the fact that they literally were in life death situations every day. Mm-hmm. Now, the young people that were learning from them learned the same language, learned the same um, ideology, but didn't understand it didn't where it applied and where it didn't. Right. And it manifested in hatred and anger and very, very poor things. And that, I think, directly relates to masculinity. We, as, or I say myself and as men, we learn from the men in our lives. Mm-hmm. We don't always understand why those men do those things, but we observe it. And looking at how the world changes, many men have pushed back, feeling like their identities have become under attack or what is a man is under attack. And most, I don't think, have reacted that well. Military-wise, they reacted very poorly. That that funnel of men's culture taking the epitome of it and then focusing it into a group and handing them a whole bunch of big guns really empowers it to mm-hmm. become an extreme. So mm-hmm. less so that it's an influence and more that it's a focal. Mm-hmm. I hope that helps. Yes. I'm just sort of taking it in and, and thinking about how masculinity is, is such a convoluted concept for me because when I have conversations with other men, I, I find that people are typically of one of two camps. In one camp, they want everything to fall under the banner of masculinity because men can be anything they want to be, which is great. And in the other camp, there's this desire to acknowledge that because men can be anything they want to be, that means leaving masculinity meaning what it means today, but changing what it means to be a man to include feminine things. I prefer the second explanation because I think implicit in it is an anti-misogyny message. I feel like implicit in it is an acknowledgement of non-binary gender expression. And that's perhaps why some people prefer the first expression that we can just expand masculinity, right? And I don't know that we can, like maybe we can, but I don't think it's the most effective way to go about it. I don't think it's the most um, compelling society. Like I don't think a society that results from thinking of masculinity as literally anything and everything. In, in which case, why are we even using the word masculinity? If it doesn't mean anything, it doesn't mean anything. So my perspective is to leave the word meaning what it means, to talk about toxic elements of gender, whether we're talking about the notion that a woman should spend all of her money to make herself pretty, which some could argue is a toxic form of or, or manifestation of femininity, um, or, you know, the hegemonic gender version of what femininity should be, or, you know, for that matter, we could talk about toxic masculinity and all the hegemonic gender of being aggressive, hyper-aggressive, hyper-masculine, of controlling conversations, of controlling rooms, etc. So yeah, I was thinking about that, that clusterfuck. <laughs> it is a cluster. And I don't think having masculinity involve all things helps in any way. Mm-hmm. What I would put it more towards that we're talking about these multi-directional um, spectrums like we do with uh, identity and, and sexuality and all these other things that there isn't we often think of spectrums in a straight line and we mm-hmm. have one thing on one side, one thing on the other. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a massive disservice. Mm-hmm. One, because when we really break down the concept of um, identity or whatever it is, a spectrum is two extremes. Masculine and feminine would actually be on one side of a spectrum because they are an identity. The opposite of that would be neither. 
those are those are two polarized opposites. So when we talk about masculine femininity, I think what we're really talking about is a very small portion of a very large spectrum of identity mm-hmm. that manifest in different specifics and that it becomes toxic when it's an expectation, when you mm-hmm. feel the pressure to be it versus just being an identity. And I think as we move away from those things, we start moving down the spectrum in that, well, I am various things and they don't necessarily need to or fit at all into masculine or feminine. Um, I like my guy liner because it's been sure, coined. Sure. Uh, I just call it eyeliner, but it does not make me feminine in my eyes, even sure. though it would often be associated with femininity. Sure. It's just, it's, it's actually, well, it's actually my wife's uh, eyeliner that she gave me because it didn't work for her. So sure. in that way, I didn't buy it, but Got it you. is just mine now. It's my eyeliner. There's nothing masculine or feminine about that eyeliner. Sure. If I do a tight line to make my tacks at my eyes because I feel like making my eyes pop that day, mm-hmm. it's because I want them to. Mm-hmm. If I go for a grunge rocker look because I feel a little harder that day, sure. cool. If I look like I walked out of a um, some a goth film sure. like The Raven, cool. Whatever. It's Sorry, The Crow. It's good. It doesn't actually matter. I don't think those things apply either way. Mm-hmm. That when we get down to it, masculine and feminine are much more abstract ideas and it's the expectation of anything that becomes destructive Mm -hmm. expectations should be don't be a terrible human being sure don't hurt people sure work as a whole work to be better Mm -hmm. support each other those are good things bad things are like be super selfish and i don't mean that in the sense of like take care of yourself because taking care of yourself is not selfish right but there are definitely things that fall into selfish. So as this expands, that masculinity... Right, the notion of taking what you want. Taking that's what I what, want. That's what you probably meant by selfish, was the yeah. masculine notion of taking what you want being like yeah. a very masculine... I'm going, I am going to be loud. I'm going to be dominant. I am going to stand over someone and puff my chest out and make them afraid that I might do one of those things that men are that do it too much. That is this these ideas that men are violent, which I mean, unfortunately in large numbers, they are, but, or can be, or can be. And using that Mm -hmm. as a weapon, whether you yourself are violent, if you use the fact that that's a common thing to puff yourself up, to make others back down, you are engaging in a destructive practice. And that's basically the foundation of policing military that I don't need to fire a bullet to win. Right, because you're using intimidation that you might be violent. Yes. That you might fire a bullet. It's, in many ways, far more effective to lay to drop a whole belt of machine gun ammo in that person's direction than to actually shoot them. Interesting. And that, that is because that person is going to go to this village. They're going to say things. The whole concept of psyops is very, con- um, is very large scale. What psyops is psychological operations? Psychological operations, yeah. <clears throat> and that, that, that theology behind it is very foundational in intimidation tactics. Mm-hmm. So just understanding how our actions impact perceptions of what we represent. Yeah. And in, in, in the warfare sense, that stuff is sometimes necessary. Because it often does save lives, but it, but we use it in a day, but often people use it in a day-to-day sense in their daily lives when that level of conflict and, and events are not relevant. Right. So, and I saw that a great deal in my, in my colleagues and other men that they would engage in similar tactics when they're at the mall 
<laughs> so crazy to me. Yeah. And that, or that when they're dealing with a customer service individual because they want their refund. Right. So they're going to engage in the same way I would try. I was taught to engage to get information from a combatant. Right. <laughs> they would talk to the poor 16 year old service um, industry person. And that, that mentality behind it is terrible. Yeah, that's kind of horrific. I feel bad for that 16-year-old. I think a lot of us feel bad for the 16-year-old uh, in, in, in retail. Like, retail sucks. And when you're a teenager, it's even worse because half the people you deal with are adults. Like right. I say, myself, right. I'm a big individual. I'm not particularly tall. I'm pretty average on the height scale, but I am broad. And I am very strong. And I've been told I'm, I am intimidating. That's, I don't see it. I think of myself as a teddy bear. But it is, I am an intimidating individual, apparently. <laughs> and mm -hmm. so, yeah, when I ask for something, I tend to get it without recognizing, without realizing I get it. Mm -hmm. And that's not really okay. Yeah. I hear what you're saying. That's, that's pretty, that's a pretty different experience of life, even than one that I specifically relate to, or perhaps I'm not as perceptive of the things I ask for. Just kidding. It could just be awareness too. Yeah. Thank you for that discussion. Mm-hmm. So you, you already kind of touched on how military masculinity got in the way of healthy relationships. I'm curious about your experiences before the military. How did regular ideas of masculinity when you were, I guess, 18, 19, like that portion of your life, how did that get in the way of forming meaningful or intimate relationships? Well, it got in the way a lot. Um, primarily at that age, I thought of relationship and intimacy as sex. Right. That I think that's a common issue with young people in general. Mm-hmm. You think of intimacy, you think the physical intimacy, missing all the other great forms of intimacy that exist. Mm -hmm. um, growing up, I had a lot of um, issues with men in my family. So my father left when I was very young, like very young, around two, and he died at around seven. My stepfather um, came into my life around three or four years old. He left when I was about 13. My grandfather mm -hmm. and great-grandfather all died within two years of that. And one of my uncles um, acted poorly and doesn't really engage in the family at all anymore. Mm -hmm. So I went through most of my formative teenage years with a grand total of one male in my family mm -hmm. and my brother, who also was not a healthy male. Um, but I didn't look to my brother as a, as a role, role model. model. He sure. was my, my sibling. So I had my uncle who, though a wonderful individual, definitely a product of his generation. Yeah. So realizing now there's some issues there. So I grew up primarily with women around me mm -hmm. and they, they didn't necessarily engage in feminism in the way that a lot of us uh, here nowadays with women, some people are very vocal about it. My family was not. Mm -hmm. So by the time I was about 18, 19, I had these ideas that men were supposed to be things, but it primarily became or came from media. Sure. And other sources and outside sources. And I was a, I would have said I would have men rights, men's right activist. And, yeah. and I would say that with great intentions, <laughs> right. but it's a, it's not good. <laughs> yeah. it, it's missing the point. Mm -hmm. But I thought about things like suicide rates are high. Yeah. Um, working in violent and harsh environments with, and expected to just do the job instead of wearing your proper safety procedure stuff Yeah. and all those kind of ideas that actually are destructive to men. Yeah. But I didn't look at feminism as being part of that when I realized, of course, now that is a part of what feminism deals with is those expectations. Mm -hmm. I would have been called an edgelord <laughs> where I like to poke the bear. I know I've talked about this before, but I like to poke the bear and really twist people just to be mean. Mm -hmm. but it was a, it was a way of giving me power. Right. You're talking about yourself then. Myself. Absolutely. I would give me power mm -hmm. by 
kind of twisting and asking leading questions to a person who's talking about something that actually affected them and had no effect on me. Mm-hmm. So um, dealing with Aboriginal stuff, people of color, uh, feminist issues, anything mm-hmm. that really mm-hmm. I had no skin in the game. But I like to play devil's advocate. And it created a, a delusion of power because I am, I have been known to be a decent orator. I was always good at public speaking. I never shied away from it. So mm-hmm. I was able to kind of wiggle my way in and make myself seem right, even if I was absolutely wrong. And it wasn't that I was being smart. It's I was preying on the fact that these other people had less resources. I'm a, I am white. There's everything I learned focused around me. Mm-hmm. That's not the same for people of color mm-hmm. or aboriginals. So it very much, they didn't have the same resources growing up. So when I would call on X, Y, Z as evidence, the other person couldn't always do that. But that's not because they, it's not there. It's because they didn't know it. And it was easy for me. Mm-hmm. So that, that masculine, I really fought to be top, to be mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it was to create a sense of grandeur and the sense of worth that realizing as I aged was not healthy. I did not feel like I was worthwhile. That's something that I'm realizing in my life too, is I've worked really hard, um, at least when I was younger, um, to always be right about things. Mm -hmm. And more and more, I've become less interested in that. I've kind of withdrawn from social media a fair amount. And I'm I'm starting to more post things as observations and not host discussions the way I used to. It, (laughs) yeah, there's a, the whole left book conversation concept is very, very iffy. And as far as relationships are concerned, that definitely showed. I always had the right way of doing things in my relationships. And, hey, why don't you try this way? It's really good. Now, in some cases, I actually did have a, a good way of doing things. Um, especially when it came to cleaning. This is something that came up a lot in numerous relationships. Mm-hmm. I worked most of my youth as a janitor. I worked for various cleaning companies, including a doctor. I am very good at cleaning. I can clean a house top to bottom in record time, know what I'm doing. But I was pompous about it. Right. I did not try to work with my partners and my friends to help them be better or to show them a way that's maybe a little more effective. I wanted to feel like I knew better than them. Mm-hmm. So that was that got in the way of a lot of relationships. Always yeah. feeling like I had to be right. And I was right because I was. And look at me. And that kind Well, the of results idea. were better, right? <laughs> the results were better. Yes, exactly. So it did. It caused strife. Yeah. A great deal. And it was love arguments. Yeah. Of course, this was prior, before I really knew how open house communication effectively worked. Um, I was very much a pseudo psychologist <laughs> reading sure. Wikipedia to get my, my, my concepts. So at the time it was not effective <laughs> and it was not helpful and it hurt. It, it yeah. really just drove wedges. And in some cases, yeah. uh, I never repaired those bridges or those wedges Sure. and other people, it, it affected us for years. Mm-hmm. So that, that culture of dominance, of, of needing to be right, of needing to be top dog, as it were, drove wedges in your relationships and ultimately damaged your social network and your ability to connect with people, probably. Oh, there's, there's an old proverb. It's the, when you look at, or when the war is over, ask the field of dead if honor mattered. Your silence right. is your answer. And I think that's the same in this case. It's, okay, I, if I feel I'm right, even if I was right. Sure. If I'm sitting in an empty room, it doesn't matter if I was right. I'm yeah. alone. Yeah. And that there are plenty of ways to communicate ideas without being alone in a room. Absolutely. That don't necessarily involve dominance and don't necessarily involve 
telling people they're wrong or illustrating why you're right, but even just asking questions and help, helping to guide people towards their own answers or whatever might ring true for them out of what you know. Even as I got older, realizing that right and wrong is very rarely even a thing, that there is, there might be more effective, there mm-hmm. might be less effective, mm-hmm. but what's more effective for me is not more effective for someone else. Sure. So yeah, I might have a great idea and this technique works well and it's a good idea. Someone else tries it and it just doesn't work for them. Mm -hmm. And that does not make me right. Mm -hmm. And that's an important aspect that didn't manifest probably until my mid-ish twenties. Yeah. I would say about the same for me, probably mid, mid twenties. Yeah. Maybe even late twenties. <laughs> yeah, I think I, I like to think that I started really realizing that I needed to be better around twenty six, and I was not better until probably close to twenty eight, twenty nine. <laughs> Got you. And even then, there's there's now it just you know there's more room to grow. There's always yeah. ways to be better, but it took a long time. Yeah, I've found every decade of my life more enjoyable to be alive, had a better quality of life than the previous one, and I'm excited to see what my 30s will bring because I'm starting to address things like compulsive eating and anxiety. Um, I'm starting to, I mean, I addressed to the best of my ability for the first three years of my 30s or the first two years of my 30s depression. I mean, I've been tackling that one for 12 years, but, <laughs> but I finally feel like I'm getting to a place where I'm winning the battle against depression. I'm getting to a place where I'm, I'm able to be more functional and my low days are one to three days, not like five to 28 days. And I mean, I imagine when you were younger, you probably didn't vocalize or engage. You were meant to suck it up or be be the man, so to speak. Oh, I just, I rejected it outright at such a young age, but it was still always there. But I was very stubborn, which didn't serve me. But in this one aspect, it served me pretty well because I was pretty confident that I knew what I wanted in terms of gender expression. And I was just that. It wasn't that wearing makeup made me less of a man or more feminine. It made me more Victor. Mm. That's the way that I looked at it was that Victor falls somewhere between masculine and feminine or falls somewhere on both of those spectra or, you know, however you want to look at it. Excellent. Yeah. And then doing what I wanted to do to feel like myself made me more me. It didn't make me necessarily less masculine, even if, um, yeah, because the way that I look at it, even think about my gender now, like rocking a beard and, and, all, all of these things that I do that are masculine, just they're in addition to anything I do that might be feminine, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. And I think about the way we, I handled issues, like when I had a very bad breakup with a partner in my sure, early 20s. Sure, sure. And um, my wife was very supportive um, during that process, but it just wasn't quite enough. Like I always felt like there was more and that grieving process is long. Mm. Well, my, my colleagues, my, my friends from the military recognized that and were very supportive in what they thought was a good way. <sighs> and in the sense that they go, you know, there's, there's stuff going on. We need to help you. And that sense of brotherhood is fantastic and mm-hmm. supporting each other. And yes, let's do this. Except their idea of support was to take me out, introduce me to a great deal of alcohol and mm. see if they could find me three or more women to enjoy oh, that night geez. so I could feel better because somehow in their mind... That was supposed to be better? Yeah. In their mind, if I was drunk right, and have eaten a lot of food, primarily meat, mm-hmm. and I had sex two or three times... That would be better. I would just magically feel better. And talk about avoidance. <laughs> yes. And even that indulgence and the concept and the idea behind my emotions are directly linked to whether I'm fed, drunk, or fucking. 
Right. Sorry, I don't know if I'm allowed to say that word. On no, the you can definitely say that okay. word. Okay. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, that that to them that was a solution. And right, the whole the best I've heard this masculine hypermasculine phrase: the best way to get over a woman is to get under a woman. Yeah, and that is, I I don't even think I. I don't have the spreadsheets available to show how wrong those are, <laughs> like how destructive that is. And it is. It's so yeah. destructive. <laughs> Even as a non-monogamous person that has mm-hmm. relationships with multiple people, if I lose a relationship, that doesn't mean the first thing I do is go to another relationship. It's like if I lose a relationship, my, my knee-jerk reaction is to isolate myself. Like I need my space to grieve. I need to grieve that relationship. It's not like, like I have monogamous folks say things like, oh, well, you know, at least you're still in blank number of relationships or whatever, or at least you still have a relationship. And it's like, but that isn't a relevant silver lining. Like, it's like saying at least you still have your health when someone's grieving. It's true. Doesn't, it might frame it better, but like, you just need to grieve, you know? Well, that idea that, oh, well, you have someone else. Like, well, we all have someone else. We have, yeah. everyone has friends. Yeah. Monogamous people who have breakups have friends. Mm-hmm. I have partners who are sexually involved or friend or romantically involved. I have more than one partner that I do not engage with in a sexual nature, but mm-hmm. we are very much in a relationship mm-hmm. that doesn't make the relationship less. No. And even if I were to have a breakup with that person, I would still grieve. Definitely. And that, yes, I might look to my partners and it's nice that I have people that are closely linked to me, but sometimes I think about the, um, the, um, bromance culture or the, the bay culture, you know, um, sure. women should post my bay and it's, it's their female friend. And they mean it in the, in the absolute, um, heterosexual sense, the, the non-sexual and that, yeah, this is just my, my person and that those borderline very heavily on what we often refer to as non-sexual relationships. Like sure. They're, you're, you're engaged romantically. A lot of BFF scenarios are very similar to concepts of romance. Yeah. Um, well, they say the difference between like the buddy picture, uh, right? And uh, a rom-com is whether or not they're having sex and whether or not they're heterosexual and same, same, you know. He, exactly. Yeah. And it is a, that idea that you, well, you have someone else. Well, we all have someone else. Mm-hmm. Very rarely does someone actually have nowhere to turn to. Right. So. Which, it, which still happens, but mm-hmm. less, less commonly, I think. Absolutely. We, even those of us who don't have huge social groups mm-hmm. still tend to have social groups. So I can talk to my friend or I can talk to this person over here. And it's not helpful to expect someone to just be better. Yeah. And I think about, those guys in the military that just thought, Hey, let's just feed you, get you drunk and find a couple nice women and you, and you'll be fine. Um, and the people who, who say, Oh, well, you'll just be better. You have other people to lean on. You'll be fine. Um, both of those come from the idea that they want to be helpful. They believe in you and they want to support you right? and not understanding how, and not right. understanding the basics of how to comfort someone, how to comfort how to a human being. someone. Yeah. Yeah. And we all do it differently. Sure. That's a, a important thing to acknowledge too. I'm very social. I'm a very much an extrovert. I love having people around me. Um, and conversing, being vocal is mm-hmm. an important thing to me. If I'm quiet, something's wrong. <laughs> and most people around me have started realizing that, that if I'm suddenly quiet, that's a, that means I'm not just starting to be bad. I'm bad. Yeah. It used to be like that for me too. And I don't know how I've been changing, but I have been changing where quiet is not as bad. If I'm very quiet, it still usually means something's wrong. I'll, <laughs> I say one of my 
my very common relate or relationship dynamic is to sit on the couch together and show each other memes um and, and show each other memes oh i see funny funny memes that come across your feeds whatever you. one it is and it's very much sometimes that is i've had that stop suddenly or i'll look at my my partner sitting on the couch with me and I'll go, oh i'm not going to bother them and that's a sign that i'm not okay because that's something i do Mm-hmm. So what I, when I think back, what I really needed was I needed people to talk to me. I needed to be able to look at my friends and talk about what my pain was, how I was feeling, um, and let that out. Mm-hmm. Now I've come across this myself and I've been the subject of this and that I, ha- I know it's important to walk a line between talking about me mm-hmm. and bad mouthing another. Yeah. And this is a, this is a a very, sometimes it's very obvious. Most of it can be very gray. Mm -hmm. Um, I found that when I would start talking about, um, my ex or one of my exes or something that hurt me, um, if I started using language that directed at them a lot, I need to catch that Mm -hmm. because I, that shouldn't be what's happening. I was in long-term relationships, some of which three more years with people who it, we, we self-destructed in a not okay way. Mm-hmm. If I caught myself using them statements very often, like it was a sign. They did. They were like, they exactly. always. Yeah. Versus this hurt me or I right. felt isolated. I felt hurt. I right. felt um, abused or, um, or manipulated or whatever it was that I was mm-hmm. feeling. I felt, because even if that person intentionally did it, mm-hmm. I don't know that. Yeah. How often do we really truly know what someone, why someone did something? Yeah. I don't think we ever can as no. humans. Like, <clears throat> yeah, I was listening to a clinical psychologist. Um, she, had a, she has her doctorate in psychology and she now works as a streamer. So she like does web streaming on caffeine. I'll, I'll throw a link in, but she does a lot of, um, a lot of free resources. That's very useful resources to have. Totally. To have someone with a doctorate in clinical psychology, just being like, here's what a cognitive distortion is. And it's mm-hmm. here are the ways that we do that to ourselves. Just like what you were saying about, um, I believe this person did this intentionally. It's sort of like when we leave social situations thinking they all thought I was stupid. It's like, you don't know that everyone thought that and projecting your insecurity onto them like that really does distort your cognition. You start perceiving situations as being inherently hostile or really, really awful in a way that doesn't serve the other people you're talking about and doesn't serve you at all. And it's, it, it drives webs, wedges. Totally. Um, particularly if you have a close partner or friend and your social circle is quite linked. Yeah. Um, I have recently experienced a loss of probably a third of my close social circle due to a similar scenario. And it was not healthy. Things mm-hmm. went bad. Mm-hmm. And people chose sides, which mm-hmm. shouldn't ever have to be a thing. Yeah. But in some cases it, it happens. And so linking that back to the masculinity idea, yeah, the yeah. idea of being right, it is so Again, yes, easy yes. to point the finger to be right. Because mm-hmm. if I can show people around me how justified I was in my actions, mm-hmm. I'm right in my actions. And they may pick your side. <clears throat> and they'll pick my side. And that is not okay mm-hmm. on either side. Regardless, if you can't justify poor behavior by circumstance. Mm-hmm. So that is, and in this case, we have an interesting um, scenario that my partner was masculine mm-hmm. identifying. So we have this, we have two masculine identifying individuals. Right. 
having this out Mm -hmm. and thinking back now, the surrounding, the people surrounding us acted very binary. Mm -hmm. They looked at my other partner and didn't see the masculine identity and looked at me and did. And this is unhealthy. This is part of that aspect of masculinity that's highly destructive. It came down to, or some of it came down to, well, someone has a penis. And that goes against so much of everything that is identity. Yeah, that it shouldn't really be about what genitals you have. It mm-hmm. should be more about, if we're talking masculinity anyway, about gender. And I mean, it, it, there definitely is something to be said for having a boyhood versus not having a boyhood mm-hmm. and how different socialization is going to impact us later in life. Absolutely. Yeah. And it is a, that's narrow. Nothing was healthy. Sure. I'm not going to point the finger. Yeah, yeah, yeah I'm going to sure. own the things I did that were wrong because yeah. n- neither of us were good in that one. Sure. But it definitely formed this interesting dynamic that caused me a lot of dis- uh, um, issues mm-hmm. because it was not, it, it became polarized mm-hmm. unnecessarily mm-hmm. against how the identities existed in that moment. And so, yeah, you said there's childhood is very different. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I grew up, I grew up male. I am male. My childhood has very different context than other than some people's. Sure. So that, but it's still destructive masculine concepts of being right, right, or us versus them, or dominance, sure. or whatever that's going to be. Sure. Well, it's so interesting because you just answered like two of the next questions that I was going to ask. So I think we just naturally moved through them. Efficient. Yes, definitely. We were, I was, so I did podcasts recently on the lack of autonomy in prison and how training individuals not to make any of their own choices, training them, this is what, when you're going to make your bed, this is how you're going to make your bed. Just like you were talking about swinging your legs out of bed and just going in the morning. Um, do you think there is, I mean, and I think it's kind of an easy question to answer. I was going to ask, do you think there's similarities between like the institutions of our carceral system and the way that we um, run prisons versus our military institutions and how we run armies? In some ways, yes. In other ways, depends on the country. Sure, uh, And sure. this is where it gets complicated because when we think of, or I'm going to start with the, the day-to-day stuff. We can just talk about the Canadian context oh, if yeah. you like. I definitely, my initial reaction, I get up, I brush my teeth, I go. Those foundational habits, I eat at X time because if I don't, I might not get it. Right. And not because it's not available, but because I might be busy. Right. And there are some things I can't stop to eat for. Right. So in that sense, there is habitual things that become very forced Mm -hmm. and arguable. Some of that's good. I'll be Mm -hmm. honest. When Mm -hmm. I became, when Mm -hmm. I got out of the army, I found I brushed my teeth less. (laughs) That need, that's something I had to make a cognitive decision for because my habit was helpful. Yeah. And the habit kind of diminished when I didn't. When there wasn't this, I have to anymore. Right. So I, I noticed some basic things start to drop off that I just need to make a, cog, a, a decision, decision for me yeah. for. Sure. Yeah. Versus um, in the Canadian context, um, we are actually not taught to do as they say, not or do what I say and don't think. Right. We are not taught that in, in the forces. That's great. We think about that. Typically, we think of the American military, sure, which sure. is more in that direction. But we are taught to be very autonomous. However... There is this idea called the top down, which is if I'm on the low level of things, which I was, by the time something gets to me, it has been talked over. 
usually anywhere from six to eight levels. Right. So it's not so much that I was supposed to just follow orders. It's that by the time the order got to me... It had it, been thoroughly discussed. It's been thought... No, sometimes it was still a stupid idea. Sure. Every once in a while, you got one that came down and you looked at the person and you're like, that, no. But that was actually quite rare. And in those cases, um, it usually was someone overthought something rather than it was a bad idea. Got you. They just gave you way too detailed information that made no sense from people who didn't understand how your job worked. Right. Sure. For, which I'm sure most people who go to regular office jobs are very familiar with. Anyone who can use the term micromanagement sure. understands exactly what I'm referring to. Sure, sure. And so there's that we are taught to think in the moment. Mm -hmm. And what's it? The adapt and overcome is a huge aspect of what we do. When a scenario occurs, you don't stop and contemplate. You solve the problem. Mm -hmm. That is good in theory and good in short term. That applying outside is not so helpful because acting on impulse can be hurtful. Sure. When we consider the prison aspect and the institutional aspect, we expect a lot of institutionalized uh, things to just do as you say, not do as what, what I say without thinking. Even to some extent, schools are an institution. Yeah, less or so now with the moderate, with the new curriculum. But again, we're in year two of the new curriculum. Right. So that hasn't really taken offense. School very much was an industrialized concept. Right. Take in students, pump out workers. Right. And there's a few of those workers that come from um, very successful families and they'll become managers. And mm -hmm. every once in a while, there'll be someone that comes up from the basic people and they will become a manager. And that's this very um, classical industrialized um, concept of, of wealth and richness and industry. We're even stamped into batches by year. Absolutely we are, which is one of the things I hate because it's yeah, great. People nine, are going to learn 10. at different rates too. Well, there's that. And sometimes maturity matters. I remember, sure. I think back to years of high school and university where I really didn't learn anything. And it wasn't because I wasn't paying attention. It's because my brain was not somewhere where it was ready to absorb. Mm -hmm. But I was supposed to be there. So I missed great opportunities for knowledge because my mind was focused elsewhere. I think all of grade nine was spent thinking about a girl that I had a serious crush on. When, like specifically in social studies nine. Because... She sat like two rows ahead of me, one row over, and it was the block before PE. So I was dreading having an erection in PE. So it was like, I had all these like hashtag teenage boy problems. Mm -hmm. And like, I think I remember like absolutely nothing of social studies nine as a result of that. Very much. I, I was in gym class and I remember I was watching the, uh, the other student body run. Mm -hmm. And my coach called me on it. You know, are you paying attention? Now I repeated word for word what he had just said. And he said oh, I thought you were just watching them run. I, oh, I was, but I was listening. And In fact, I'm more likely to remember all the things that you said because yeah. of... Which is an interesting thing because I was actually rewarded for that. Interesting. I had the, the other male students around me thinking I was awesome because I could watch the ladies run and listen to class. And now time. my coach didn't look at me or even bring it up to me if I wasn't paying attention. Interesting. So I was rewarded for ogling the female student body mm -hmm. running, which mm -hmm. of course, as an adult now, mm -hmm. I, I think back and going, ooh, that's not healthy. Probably not the best That's not modeling. a behavior we need to enforce in young yeah, men. I agree. So, and it, uh, I can think of a few moments similarly where sure. the, the nature of what I did in class benefited me, even though it was 
Oh, right. It's one of those boys will be boys situations where a harmful behavior gets normalized. Absolutely. And that benefited me a great deal growing up. And And I'm not that old. I'm 30. And probably harmed you in other ways. And the more that we tend to objectify potential partners, the harder it can be to connect with them as human beings. Mm -hmm. And that can lead to diminished senses of intimacy or connection or closeness or even feeling understood as a human being. I have definitely associated for a good hunk of my life that... If for me to have value in my partner's eyes, I need to be having sex. And it took mm. years to fully understand why I felt that way and the destructive nature of that. Mm-hmm. And the, the intimacy and connection comes in so many levels. So definitely those early experiences um, were a problem. Yeah. And in my young, I had an issue with a number of partners ghosting as we call it now right i don't know if i had if there was a term when i was young because the ghosting was coined a little later right so whatever it was um i had a number of partners do this Mm -hmm. and it took a very fine therapist and counseling sessions to identify that it really bothers me Mm -hmm. and makes me feel incredibly invalid and low when someone just doesn't tell me and that I am totally okay with someone saying, I don't want to see you again, or I don't want to see you today. Or I don't want to talk anymore. Or I don't want to talk anymore. But if they don't say I don't want to talk anymore and they just stop talking, mm-hmm. I, I feel you. It's, it's hard for me to. Or to something I noticed that is a lash out. Some people lash out, and I mean people, because I think this is something that's more universal. Lash out with something and then demand a break. Mm-hmm. And you leave that person with that hurt. And that we always get to decide when we are done talking. That Mm -hmm. is absolutely a truth. Mm -hmm. To end your segment with a lash out and then not allowing that other person... To have a retort or a rebuttal. Exactly. I think about that in a power tactic. Sure. I think about that in the way I would, if I wanted to control, Sure. I would manipulate and control that way. Yeah. And... It's, I'm going to, I chop it up to me and other partners being young and not understanding. There's no hard feelings for those folks in this stage in my life, but it's definitely something I noticed. And now I struggle with silence Mm -hmm. and I struggled with silence only after I loved silence during service. Silence was no problems. Right. Noise meant problem. Now that I'm out. And I've been forced to deal with some um, some trauma and different things that occurred, um, both military and otherwise. Um, I realize I hate silence. Interesting. And it's it's causing me a little distress at times because my life is becoming quieter. That's not necessarily a bad thing, but it does sound like it's a lot of opportunity for growth for you. <laughs> yeah, it needs to be. <laughs> Sometimes we don't have a choice. I like that, um, the AFOG, the fuck, another fucking opportunity for growth in non-monogamy. <laughs> it's such a, such a universal truth, I think, for folks practicing non-monogamy and probably monogamy as well, although I don't mm-hmm. think the term AFOG is popular necessarily there yet. It's coming. Definitely every, every partner is something new. And there's a wonderful partner I have um, who we have, it's just a semi-romantic um, friendship essentially we we watch movies read books and we break them down in ridiculous ways and we get we overanalyze <laughs> we're both English majors and we just love breaking things apart got you and there has never been a sexual aspect to us and that person is someone that 
seems to get me on a level I'm not used to. And that that's definitely a moment of of cognitive dissonance for me because it sh- it it's challenges that mold. Yeah. Yeah, it challenges a notion of intimacy that I held for a great deal of time. And early on when we began ro- ro- being romantic and they sh- verbally because i i seek verbal um affirmation and questions Mm -hmm. they said no i'm not interested in sex and they have have you heard my perspective on the word romantic sort of i think so not that i have any problem with people using it because i'm ultimately communication is just understanding what people mean Mm -hmm. and i understand what you mean perfectly well um but when i think about like definitions behind the word romantic typically it's meant more of like an ideal yes so whether that was like a romantic tale being one of heroism and all sorts of, you know, like the hero's journey, that kind of thing, or whether it's romanticizing a sport rarely means a whole bunch of beefy guys making love to each other. It probably means, you know, thinking of a sport. It's a very different film. That's a very different romance. <laughs> it's a very different <laughs> film. Um, whereas romanticizing a sport might just mean thinking about it in this idealized way, like, mm-hmm. oh, the halcyon days of Maurice Richard, you know, like, <laughs> like th- that kind of romanticizing. Um, so when we talk about love and we talk about romantic love, it still harkens back to that. We're, we're talking about an ideal, but the question mm-hmm. is, whose ideal is it? Is it my ideal or is it society's ideal? That's the big question, isn't mm-hmm. it? That we, are, we meeting, are we meeting our own mold or are we meeting theirs? Right. And it really should never be society's. And that it's mm-hmm. okay. And again, this partner, this is the thing mm-hmm. that realizing that what we are is okay. It's Mm -hmm. enough. Mm -hmm. In fact, in the comparison of many of my relationships, what I have with them is is incredibly deep and meaningful. Mm -hmm. But I can't always say other relationships have met that level. And they don't actually need to. It's not a comparative. It's what I get from that individual is quite a bit. Mm -hmm. And it's okay to be whatever it is you're going to be. I, I am non-monogamous. I used to call myself polyamorous. Um, I'm much more on the side of relationship anarchy now. Yeah, me too. In the way things are. But the that is the huge part of I am whatever we want to be. Yeah. And if you don't want to be certain things and I want to be certain things, depending, I can either let it go or maybe we won't work out. Or you yeah, want to be something absolutely. and I don't and uh, you can't let it go. So we're not going to. Or we work it out and we just let it be. And it is very flowy. And there are times that it, it goes up where someone who doesn't want something um, physical with me suddenly does. And we kind of go through a bout of that. And then it drops off. Yeah. And, they, you know, I don't feel like anymore. And that's not a rejection of me. Mm-hmm. It is a change in dynamic. Yeah. And that's fine. Yeah. It's totally okay. I, I, I love that idea that it's not a rejection of me. Like if someone says no to me, it isn't about me. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a, just it's so important. So we, we Boundaries are something with, again, we're talking about masculinity a little bit. Boundaries yeah, are yeah, something yeah. masculinity sucks at, <laughs> I think. As a cultural construct, as the way yeah. we use it, yeah. boundaries and masculinity suck. Mm-hmm. And I think the I statements are big. When we make our boundaries... It needs to be on us, not on others. As t- the bad side of masculinity really does put those boundaries on others. 
Yeah, because it's not a boundary if it's if it's trying to control someone else. It's a boundary if it's what you what you, what you're not okay with involving you as a person specifically. Mm-hmm. Even if you're with another person, you can't really put boundaries on what they do. You can put expectations on them that they agree to, and that that agreement with someone else is the two of you coming together and and consenting to respect the expectations you're setting it's different than like setting a boundary on me it's it's entering into an agreement based on expectations of others so it's it's, i found it effective at least you put a boundary out i can or cannot do x or i'm only comfortable with x y z or whatever that is sure once it's out that person gets to choose to respond yeah and whatever their response is as long as it's not hurtful manipulative destructive any of those big things Mm -hmm. which is very small things when we actually think about the grand op or all the options of response Mm -hmm. any response that isn't those things is acceptable Mm -hmm. because they're making a decision for them in respects to your boundary right we're talking about like relationships if someone says oh i don't like that boundary i'm not going to be in this relationship that's a totally okay reaction absolutely and that's one that's hard especially with masculinity because again we have to be right masculinity Mm -hmm. you're right so to set a boundary and then have someone go well, I guess we're not going to work out now. It is. It does have a sense of that person has taken the power now. Yeah, has rejected my boundary. I set a right. boundary and I didn't get what I wanted. Exactly. And that's where that destructive aspects come from. Um, in the recent, we ha- I had just uh, disagreement. is a large one that someone set a boundary that they did not want to be in a relationship with me anymore. Mm. And I, sorry, relationship with me anymore. And then my response was, well, I do. Like want to be in a relationship. I want to be in a relationship. So this was this point where we both set what we want. Not mm-hmm. so much necessarily a boundary on the sure. show, but that I want X. The other person said, I only want this. And we were at an impasse mm-hmm. in that neither of us really wanted to act. Right. And this resulted incredibly poorly. I can see how this yes. is like train headed west from New yep. York, train headed east from Vancouver. Exactly. Because yeah. it very much it just it dragged on and at the point where we took a stand and said i don't i don't just want to be friends that was my statement i don't just want to be friends i want to be more Mm -hmm. they did not we should have been done that should have been the end of it that probably would have been the healthiest way to resolve (laughs) an impasse a lot of issues wouldn't have come up later that did I see. And there would likely have been a possibility for reconciliation on at least a, a more social front or just sure. being better as people in the same environment. Unfortunately, it did not go that way. Got you. And probably because of that, that in those setting of personal boundaries, the other person did not want to act when we needed to. Right. So the other party who wasn't really open to being in a relationship such as you wanted mm-hmm. one wasn't willing to act on that and say, okay, that means we're done. And you didn't want to act on it because you wanted to still be in a relationship of some kind. Because we were, and I think it honestly came from the fact that we were both afraid of losing each other. We were someone who was important to each other for many years. And the idea of complete loss is frightening. Yeah, I think that's true. Yeah. And that we weren't willing to do that. Mm -hmm. And so what we ended up doing (laughs) was prolonging it. And it really felt like we were constantly trying to be in control of each other. We were always trying to be that masculine top, that that control unit. Mm-hmm. And the result was a absolute catastrophic nuke. 
mm-hmm. on what on the social relationship and the social dynamic and everything around it. Mm-hmm. There was nothing. It was burn, purge, salt the earth. It was not good. Right. So, and it, it, I think it really, at the end of the day, was unwillingness to act and destructive masculinity or destructive concepts of masculinity, which the irony of decisive action is generally considered masculine. Yep, that's totally <laughs> fair. But also, um, vulnerability being seen as like this this horrible thing that we can't show. And if decisive action means vulnerability, then you're at a conflict of toxic masculinity. That's an excellent point. Yep. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking all this time and, and talking. Um, I think we covered all my questions. Did you have anything else you wanted to add before we wrap up on masculinity? Uh, just that there, whatever it is to individuals, that's okay. Mm-hmm. Whatever masculinity or femininity or whatever identity in between or outside of, whatever it is to you is okay. And that's, I think, the biggest recognition of self is that I don't need the box. Mm-hmm. That I can be in the box, I can be outside the box. Maybe I'll put my toe or hand in, or maybe I'll kick it a few times before I still I can't tell what box we're talking about. The box of identity. Yeah, that's what I had yeah. assumed you meant. Yeah. Sometimes you got to kick the box a few times before you're willing to put your foot in. But got whatever, you. whatever that box is to each individual, whatever sure. thing they want to be, that's giver. So I was I was taking it as a slang for like cunt. Oh <laughs> no. That is not what you were saying about the <laughs> box. I was intent. like, yeah, sometimes kicking the box is a good thing to do. <laughs> we all, I think we all, well, maybe not all some, of us. Some box owners like that. Some some do, but that there's a conversation for that. There's definitely a conversation ahead of just booting a box. Yeah, definitely. Safety procedures. Especially really if there's going to be like hand or especially toe in the box. Definitely have a conversation. That seems like. Yeah, safe saying consensual is <laughs> very, very, very important. It's negotiations based. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> yep. Don't just go go through like kicking the box without talking about it first. It's no, don't trump it. It's not helpful. Oh jeez. <laughs> See if that makes the cut. Oh jeez. Oh, <laughs> Thank you so much, Thank Kyle. You. Awesome. Thanks for having me. So how did you like it, Intimates? Leave your comments on facebook.com slash intimate interactions or directly on patreon.com slash Victor Salmon. Both communities are easy to find from intimatepodcast.com. So what are you waiting for? Go join the free Intimates community and start connecting with others. I'll see you on there. Disclaimer. I apologize if I said something that hit a nerve or played off a hateful idea or stereotype. I'm open to being called in. Chances are, in six months, I'll look back aghast and see something problematic I've since grown from. I'm certainly not perfect, but I am trying to be mindful of the voices I lift up and the perspectives I encourage. You can email feedback to podcast at victorsalmon.com. Thanks for your kindness. Attribution. The tracks I use are published under the Creative Commons Attribution License. The intro track was Lost Souls by Portrayal, and the outro track was Restoration by Uncle Milk. Land acknowledgement. I apologize first for any pronunciations I might butcher. I wanted to acknowledge that I recorded this podcast on the unceded traditional Coast Salish territories of the Musqueam, Kwantlen, Stazuminus, Stolo, Sawasan, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. Shout out to the Sekwepmek Nation, on whose land I got my degree, considering the Kamloops Indian Residential School closed only in 1996 when I was 10, I have found nothing but unending patience and kindness in the Tekemloopste Sekwepmek folks with whom I've interacted. Let's never forget genocide in the hope we don't make the same dehumanizing, cruel mistakes again. Thank you.